Um, I'm glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, This is part two of a series that I'm calling Over. And whether you're with us in person or you're with us at church online or you're watching on demand or you're listening to our podcast, see what I did there? A little built-in little infomercial right there. And uh, we're just, however you're joining us today, we're really glad that you're here. We're spending a few weeks uh, unpacking this whole question of being overrun with the stuff that life throws at us. And I don't know if this is anything you can identify with in your life at any season in your life or even in the last, say, I don't know, 12 months. So we're talking about being overwhelmed with life, being overcommitted in our time and energy, uh, being overdrawn financially, being overexposed maybe because of social media and in our relationships, being overworked and the pace of life. In fact, that's where uh, we're going to be today. And we're going to call this this morning overdrive. It's really about running at a pace that is sustainable for our lives. And it's something that some of us don't do very well. Sometimes we live our lives kind of like driving a car beyond its capacity, like pushing a car beyond its limits. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you've got stories to tell, perhaps from your younger days. All right. Uh Maybe you, maybe you have a story about a time you drove a car into the ground, like you pushed it beyond uh, it, what its manufacturer ever intended it to do. I don't really have any examples of that. Um, I mean, my first car was, I have a picture, it's not, this isn't my car, but my car was that same color, uh, 1978 Chevy Impala um, with, a, with that awesome beveled back window and a V8 305. I'm pretty sure I could have pulled a loaded log truck at highway speeds and not even touched the maximum capacity of that. So I don't really know. Now, maybe, now I know that if I were to put maybe one grocery bag too many in Alethea's Fiat, then I got an issue. So I, I do understand I'm aware. Sometimes, <laughs> and I'm a long-time minivan driver, so I understand Sometimes we just run so hard and so fast that we actually live at a pace we're not designed to run at. And you can do that for a season. Like, we can all do that for a season. But sometimes we tend to run every area of our lives in overdrive. Um, And when you do that for a season, that's fine. But eventually it will catch up with you. So how do you know whether you're in overdrive? So this could be one of those messages where a lot of us, especially maybe if you're a type A personality and you're naturally driven, and I probably, I fit into that category to some extent, but not completely, but maybe you would say, yeah, but that's probably me, or that's definitely me, but it's what I have to do, I don't have a choice, you know, I get that, I get your argument, I don't agree with it, but I've heard it before, it's familiar to me, because I've heard myself say it, but I, I understand where you're coming from, because we live in a culture where most of us are in overdrive, And a lot of us stay in overdrive for a long time. And sometimes we live our whole shortened lives that way. If you're in high school, overdrive is the default mode. If you're in college, overdrive is the only way to survive. You remember that? If you're single, if you're married, if you have kids, if you work full-time, if you work part-time at a couple of jobs, if you're paid hourly, if you're paid a salary, if you own your own business, it's all, all of that. It's easy to live in overdrive all the time. So what are some signs that, like, see, if we do this long enough, you don't even know you're in overdrive. It just becomes your default, your normal. So how do you know that you're in overdrive? How do you know that you're pushing yourself beyond the pace that you were designed to live? Some signs. First sign, if 
you're into listicles, here we go. First sign that you might be in overdrive is a term that I read a few years ago, and I really, it resonated with me because I, I, I was definitely guilty of this at different times in my life. It's, first of all, is the idea of skimming. This is a big red flag for me. It's the, I know I'm in overdrive when I'm skimming through life. What do I mean by that? I mean, you go to work, but you're not fully engaged at work. You're talking to someone, but you're not really listening because you're preoccupied, your mind is somewhere else. Your spouse is talking to you, but you're always thinking about something else. You're physically present with your kids, but you're not mentally and emotionally present because you're so tired. You're distracted. You're so important to other people that you're always thinking about that thing at work, that email, that text you just got, and you're missing what's in the present. You know, your, your, your to-do list is so long that it overwhelms you. Like, like every day, you can't really just do one thing at a time. Like, you don't feel like you're being very productive at all unless you've got, like, seven things going on at the same time. And you're never really focusing on one thing because you're multitasking all the time, like the plate spinner at the carnival, right? So, so nothing is really getting your undivided attention. And you get to the point where you're really just kind of glancing off of things, and you're skimming everywhere, and you're not going deep anywhere, and you're not going deep in your marriage, and you're not really, really present for your kids, and you're not performing that well at work, and you're not, for sure, not really resting, because even when you're resting, your mind is busy. You're just skimming off of things where, because you've got too much on your agenda. Um, I think that's one sign. Second sign you're in overdrive is that you're emotionally numb. When you live your life at an unrealistic pace, and you're constantly in overdrive, eventually that has an impact on your emotions. You get news that your friend is having a baby, and you know that you should be excited, and you kind of are in your head. And you know it's a good thing, but you just can't feel it. You don't feel excited. You hear the news that someone is sick, and you know that you should feel sad. And you are sad in your head, but in your heart you don't feel anything. You're just numb. Your kids come home and you're present, but you're not fully present. You're not emotionally engaged with them. Your marriage or your relationship with your significant other has kind of gone flat, and you realize it's not them, it's you. And it's a condition that you bring to everything, and you're not excited about anything, you don't feel anything, you're just kind of numb. That can be a sign of, well, it can be a sign of a lot of things, really, but it can definitely be a sign that you're in overdrive and that you've been in overdrive too long. Third sign is that your productivity is falling. You may be putting in a lot of hours. You might be doing 10, 12, 16 hours a day at work. But if you're really honest with yourself and you stop long enough to assess it, you realize you're not actually very productive. And yeah, you put on all those hours and you show up before anyone else and you stay for hours after everyone else is gone and your to-do list is longer than it's ever been and you're always struggling to, you know, to hit deadlines and you don't even really have anything to show for all those extra hours. Fourth sign, sleep doesn't really refuel you. I mean, you may, you may actually go to sleep. You may be, maybe you don't have insomnia or some kind of whatever, but sleep, even when you're sleeping, it doesn't refuel you. You wake up in the morning exhausted. You start the day kind of dragging your knuckles, and you never really find the energy that you need. And sleep that is supposed to refuel your body and give you a fresh start hasn't done that in a long time. Fifth sign that you're in overdrive is you find yourself becoming cynical. Stay in overdrive long enough, and eventually it doesn't just have an impact on your emotions and on your body. It has an impact on your outlook and the entirety of life. 
I think you can be cynical for a number of reasons, but if you stay in overdrive long enough, you'll probably become cynical. And cynicism is complex, and it's unhealthy, because here's the thing. Cynicism means you kind of lose hope. You're kind of jaded about everything. You're jaded about your job. You're jaded about your marriage. You're jaded about your finances. You're jaded about your church experience. You're jaded about things in culture. You're jaded about the idea of this year even having the possibility of being slightly better than last year. And you're just cynical about everything. Again, cynicism has a number of sources, but one of them is overdrive. And you've just, it's just you've run so hard for so long. And your mind doesn't function at its best anymore, and your heart has become kind of hardened, and those two factors make for an unhealthy combination. And then uh, signs that you're overdrive, number six, last one, you think numbered lists are dumb. So that could, be, that could be another sign, so just want you to take pause there and take a good look. Normally, normally uh, you would think that this would be a topic that we would direct towards workaholics, and it can be. But I think everybody, all of us, tend to be in a place, this is probably more true you know, than ever, where we can go through a whole season, maybe your entire life in overdrive, whether you're at home full-time raising kids, whether you're a student, whether you work for someone or you have your own business, whether you work at a job you don't really like or whether you work at a job you love, the truth is a lot of us just operate too fast. And we're going to talk about technology as a part of this series, but I think technology has actually made this more complicated because you're on all the time and people can message you and text you and you can get email on every device and you're constantly getting voicemails and you're getting notifications from 11 different apps like 24-7, 365. And there's no such thing as being inaccessible anymore. anymore. It's anywhere and everywhere, anytime. And we feel that pressure. And if you're a type A you're driven, man, this is not healthy. You need to know workaholism springs from this. And here's the thing. Workaholism is one of the most rewarded addictions in modern culture. Think about that. If you get addicted to almost anything else, if you get addicted to nicotine, if you're addicted to alcohol, if you're addicted to drugs, you're addicted to pornography, people don't think that's a good thing. But you get addicted to work, and what do they do? They promote you. They pat you on the back. That's what happens. Maybe that's what happened to you. You just get up earlier than everybody else. You showed up earlier. You stayed later. Now you're the boss. How did that happen? It's kind of a trap because workaholism in our culture is rewarded, but it's something that will push you beyond what you were designed to carry. We live in a time and in a culture where everybody's busy. I don't really run into anybody these days who isn't busy. Even people who haven't left their basement in 11 months, they're super busy somehow. Kids are busy. Adults are busy. Retired people are like, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I, I don't, how did I have time for work? I have so much to do. Everybody's busy. But here's what's really true if we're honest about it. Everybody's busy wasting time too. And I think this gets worse the busier we get. So, We all have a busy life, right? So my question is, do you have a meaningful life? Do you have a meaningful life? And is this really life the way you want to live it? I love how Socrates said it where he said, beware the barrenness of a busy life. 
Beware the barrenness of a busy life. That if you just live your life busy, <coughs> if you just live your life in overdrive all the time, whether you're a Christian or not, it leads to barrenness. And I know this is one of my favorites, that an unexamined life is not worth living. And I think this is applicable today because a lot of us, we just go from task to task and purchase to purchase and relationship to relationship and day to day and payday to payday and month to month and year to year. And we don't even think about it and we're busy, but we haven't accomplished anything significant or anything that matters for eternity. And Socrates says, that's a mistake. You're going to end up living a meaningless, barren life. Now, from a Christian perspective... There's language around this that the Bible tackles. Uh, the Bible tackles this issue and gives us some language because busyness is not simply a byproduct of the 21st century. All right, it's 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 not just a byproduct of our culture. It's it's something that has afflicted human beings for since human beings became human beings. I mean, for literally thousands of years, and God knew that, and so He designed us to actually build rest into our lives. It's something that the Old Testament has a word for, and that word kind of feels, it feels kind of ancient in our culture today, but the word is Sabbath. That's the English version of the word Shabbat, Sabbath. From the very beginning of humankind, God said, I want you to spend some time resting. I'm going to set an example for you. Well, how much time, God? Like a seventh of your life. One in seven days, on average, you're to take that time to rest. And then when the Jewish nation came along, he punctuated the Jewish calendar and the ancient Israelite calendar with lots of other time off on top of the Sabbath. Today, we call them statutory holidays, right? But back then, they were feast days and they were fast days. So every few weeks or every couple of months, you'd have an extra day off. And you wouldn't just take off, you know, you know for camp. Uh, you would actually spend meaningful time in the presence of God. So I'm going to use the word Sabbath quite a bit, so let's give it a definition. By Sabbath, I don't mean a particular day of the week, okay? The Sabbath is not, for us, is not about a particular day of the week. For observant Jews, it is. It's about what we know as sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. But for us as followers of Jesus, it's not about a particular day of the week. Here's the thing. By Sabbath, we don't mean just take a day off. That's usually part of it. Take time away from your responsibilities of your workplace. But it's more than that. It involves pausing, like stepping away from your work, from the responsibilities and the stresses and the pressures of your work, from the people in your workplace. And depending on the nature of your work, this is going to take some serious intentionality. But the defining characteristic of the principle of Sabbath that I just don't want us to miss is engaging in a practice that feeds our soul that replenishes your soul. There's a spiritual component to observing a Sabbath. It often involves disconnecting from people, yes, and it it involves time away from work and responsibilities, but in order to reconnect with God. It's more than a long weekend. It's more than a day off once a week. It's about downtime, yes, but it's about downtime for the purpose of restoration and replenishment and reconnecting with God. So we're going to look at a couple passages of Scripture just briefly, one from Psalms and another from a book that we rarely read anymore called Second Chronicles. 
And the Psalms is, as you know, the songbook of the Jews, the song of, you know, songbook of the time before Jesus. And the writers of the Psalms would write about God. And we learn some things about the character of God. We learn some things about the rhythm of life. And we learn about their perspective from the songs that they wrote and sang. And this, was a, this is a really interesting song. In Psalm 46, which is written by David, he wrote most of them. One little verse in this psalm is very famous, the rest not so much, but this verse is pretty well known. So let's look at what the psalmist has to say about a season where life seems completely overwhelming, how to cope with it, and how he coped with it. So this is Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. Now for some of us, honestly for a lot of us, the only time we ever reach out to God is when we're like, uh, yeah, I'm in trouble. I'm in a time of trouble. That's why I'm here, God. You know, I know I ignored you for a little while there, but now I need your help. Would you help me with this? And fortunately for us, God is always ready to help. He's always ready to help, but he's not only ready to help in times of trouble. What's the psalmist say? Verse 2. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. David's like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna fear no matter if it's an earthquake or the mountains are crumbling into the sea. And, and some of you might feel like you've got earthquakes going on in your life right now. And maybe things are bad relationally, or things are bad financially, or things are bad at work, or things are bad at home. What is this perspective that helps us see that we don't have to fear when these things happen? David says, let the oceans roar and foam, let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. So he's like, let it happen because I'm at peace. And I'm not, in the midst of overwhelming circumstances, I'm not overwhelmed. Then there's this weird word. And if you've ever read the Psalms, it shows up all the time. And in this translation, the New Living Translation, it's translated interlude. The actual Hebrew word is selah. So if you're using a a different translation, I might actually say selah, S-E-L-A-H. So interlude, so sometimes that just means it's a musical term in this songbook. It means rest or break or pause The interesting thing is biblical scholars and historians don't know what the literal meaning of the word is. They just know the application of the word. It's a word that got used for a while, about a thousand years before Jesus when the Psalms were written, and then it kind of fell out of use quickly, and that happens in language all the time because languages are living things. But the best theory is that the meaning of selah is that it it had had, uh, it means silence, stop, break, rest. So since the Psalms are a songbook, and if you studied any music at all, in music notation, it would look like this, right? These are musical rests in musical notation. So here's a takeaway from the use of this simple, obscure word. That it's silence that gives meaning to what is otherwise noise. It's silence that gives meaning to what is otherwise noise. If you think about it, life has no meaning without silence, right? I mean, think about speech. If what I was saying today wasn't punctuated even with little tiny moments of silence, maybe between words or even between syllables, it would have no meaning. Without microbursts of silence in our speech, our words would just sound like a, like, uh, like a drone, Because it's silence that gives words meaning. Same with music. You can have a wall of sound, but if there's no break in the sound, you don't have meaning. It's silence that gives the meaning. And I think that what the psalmist was saying is, okay, we're saying a lot about God here. The mountains are crumbling. The world's falling apart. Pause. 
Stop. Rest. So the psalmist says, verse 6, the nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. Here's the thing. We live in a violent world, but we live in a very peaceful country. You understand that, right? And do you know, uh, even at that, we live in a very nonviolent part of a very peaceful country. So you know what violence is to you and me? Violence to you and me is headlines. It's stuff we read about. It's stuff we watch on TV. It's stuff we listen to on the news or whatever. But David didn't live in a world where it was about headlines. It was happening. Like the enemy was at the door. He says the nations are in chaos. Their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. Here's how the psalm ends in verse 10. (laughs) Be still and know that I'm God. Be still. The problem for a lot of us with this verse is that we're never still. You're not still. I'm not still. We're not still long enough to know that God is God, which, by the way, implies we're not. I mean, when was the last time you were still? When was the last time you rested? When was the last time you had anything close to even a pocket of Sabbath in your life? Where you withdrew from the expectations, the responsibilities, the pressures, the stresses, and not only withdrew, but then reconnected with God. Does any wonder why we're overwhelmed? Here's an interesting tidbit. There's really good evidence that the Israelites, the people who wrote this, never really celebrated Sabbath. Did you know that? If you study biblical history and other historians, you'll discover that even though God said every seven days you're supposed to rest, people broke the Sabbath all the time. Why? Well, because there's work to be done. Because people need me to do this stuff. I'm a busy man. I'm important. They call. They got to go. Everybody's busy. Oh, did you know that also in Jewish culture, every seven years, they were supposed to take not just a Sabbath day, but they're supposed to let their crops have a Sabbath. And we're not really in an agricultural economy, certainly not around here anymore, but you would You would let your land lay fallow for a season, let the soil replenish, and the soil would get a Sabbath every seven years. And and, and we still do that around here, actually, in the blueberry industry. Did you know that? Every other year, every third year, a blueberry field is left fallow, even a wild crop. It isn't harvested every year. Oh, and then in ancient Israel, every seventh seven years, so every 49 years, they celebrated a year of Jubilee, where everybody basically, think of this, quits their job takes the year off, and everybody rests, ideally, listen, in the presence of God. That was the point. Because I know what you just had a picture of sitting on the beach. I get it in a hand. I go, I know, but that's not. Listen, that was the plan. But almost every scholar will tell you that it's very unlikely that the Israelites followed this plan. They weren't very good at any of the commandments and any of the, of the law that God gave them. 
Most Israelites didn't bother taking a Sabbath day off, and almost nobody observed a Sabbath year, the year uh, of Jubilee. And, and, and I know we just figured they did. We fi- when you read the scripture, we figure they did because, you know, God commanded it, and that's what they do, because that's what we do. We always do what God tells us to do. So we figured that was true of the ancient Jews as well. But newsflash, the Israelites didn't do much of what God commanded them to do. So what happened? The interesting thing about God is that He allows us to suffer and experience the natural consequences of our disobedience. Have you noticed that? He doesn't often rescue us from the natural consequences of our disobedience. And the Israelites experienced the consequences of their disobedience. And I know there were lots of problems in ancient Israel, and it wasn't all about their failure to observe and really embrace a Sabbath Uh, Because, I mean, they did things like they made alliances with foreign nations. They ignored so much of God's law. And the principle of the the Sabbath was just one of those things. It just wasn't much of a value in their lives because they were busy, very busy, busy, busy people, busy creating their economy, busy, you know, retaining our peace, busy establishing all these alliances, uh, which, you know, you said, I know God, you said it was a bad idea, but we got this under control and look, it's all working out so good for us. Look how peaceful the region is. Look how successful we are. Look how affluent we are. Look how comfortable we are. People fear us. By the sixth century BC, Israel had entered into an alliance with a nation called Babylon. And Babylon sold Israel out. To their utter astonishment. Can you imagine? Israel got invaded by Babylon. Let's look at the story, 2 Chronicles, verse, uh, chapter 36, verse 17. 2 Chronicles 36. It says, So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. <clears throat> the Babylonians killed Judah's young men, chasing them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both the young men and the young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God, and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. Verse 20 of Second uh, Chronicles 36. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon. They became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. What was the message? Here it is. That the land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest. Lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled. Just as the prophet had said. How many years of Sabbath had they skipped that God gave the land 70 years of Sabbath, of rest? So God's like, well, one way or the other, the land is getting its rest. Well, we'll do it while you're in exile. It's almost like if you don't take a Sabbath, the Sabbath will take you. So, what is lack of Sabbath taking from our lives? I think it takes a bunch of things. So here's some questions. Is it taking your health? Probably. Probably. Running an overdrive all the time will impact your health. I know you're invincible and all that. I get it. So am I. But let's be honest. I'll tell you this. It'll take your joy. If you don't take time to rest before God, to rest in God's presence, it's going to steal your joy. It's impossible. Uh, or it's possible that maybe you haven't been happy in a very long time. That's possible. Maybe you have no idea why. You're so lost with that. 
could be because you're in overdrive all the time. And the pace of your life has stolen your joy. Ignoring Sabbath will definitely take your energy. That's why, even if you're busy, 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 putting in long hours, always the first to arrive, last to leave, that's why, even with all of that, you can become really unproductive, right? You, come, you become so unproductive because you're going all the time and you're not doing anything well. You're not doing anything with any level of excellence and you won't rest because you're afraid somebody else is going to, you know, something, well, first of all, something's going to be left undone and somebody's expectation is not going to be met and somebody else is going to try to do it and they're going to do it wrong or something, oh, God forbid, someone's going to be left in peril because after all, you're the superhero who needs to say, swoop in and save the day. Or maybe you're just, maybe for just being honest, you're afraid you're going to miss out. So you're just go, 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 go. Not practicing Sabbath will impact your marriage and your family. And we're going to talk about marriage and family and relationships and the people that matter to us as part of this series. But not taking a Sabbath and doing life in overdrive is definitely going to negatively impact your marriage, your family, the people you love the most. And then finally, this is not an exhaustive list, but just get us going. Finally, it'll impact your peace. And I struggle with this pace of life thing, but I know there's a peace that comes when you slow down. So what do you do? What do we do with this? I mean, is, 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 there, is there a practical takeaway? And if there is, what is it? What, do we, what should we do now? Um, first, I think there are some practices that we should make part of our everyday lives, like part of our routine. You're like, great, you're adding more to my life. Listen to me. Let's stay with me. Some practices help calibrate the pace of our lives. And like any new practice, it takes effort, it takes intentionality, and even some failing at it before it becomes an established you know, part of your life. So give yourself some grace in this. But since the Sabbath is more than just you know, keeping some rule for the rule's sake, because we read it on a thing on the Sunday school wall, it, it's, not, it's more than just because it's a commandment. It's more than just taking a day off every week. It's about taking time away from what causes you to rush, to stress, to worry, to, away from the demands and the expectations and the chaos and the frantic pace in order to reconnect with God. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to start each day, ready, with 15 minutes of Sabbath. I mean, I think that's doable. Come on. That's just 15 minutes of less scrolling Facebook. Start each day with 15 minutes of Sabbath. Start your day quietly. Don't get up and like automatically slide into overdrive. And you know, got to go, 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 go. Got all these things to do today. I'm just talking about 15 minutes because I'm talking about the idea of establishing a practice. So start each day with 15 minutes of Sabbath, and we can do this. So what's that look like, those 15 minutes? Well, a couple things I would recommend, and it's going to be pretty predictable. First of all, I would say read the Scriptures. Spend a few minutes in the Scriptures just to help establish your pace for the day. So just to get real practical, I would strongly suggest picking a reading plan in the Bible app and work your way through it just for a few minutes each day. And then just take a few minutes out of that 15 to pray. And if you don't know how to pray, just start a conversation with God and see what happens. Because here's what I believe. I believe there's a principle at work here. And some of you have been around church and you've been a super Christian long enough. You're like, 15 minutes is nothing. I spend like hours with God every day. Well, good for you. Uh, Good for you. Collective pat on your back. I look forward to reading your book about that. But here's the thing. (laughs) 
like so many areas of our lives, incremental investments can have exponential return. I really believe that. So like 15 minutes a day, listen, actually equals, are you ready for this? 90 hours a year. So if I said to you today, well, what you need to do is you need to commit to spend 100 hours with God this year. You're like, 100 hours with God? What's that going to look like? That's like over two weeks of work. What? 15 minutes a day. Over 50 years, you would have invested 4,562 hours in your time with God. That's a lot of time with God. And that's just 15 minutes every day. But here's the exponential return. I think you become mature. You find wisdom. You find peace. And your pace settles. So what should you do today? Well, I want to suggest that you get started. Let's get started on this. Um, and let's do it together. Um, I think we can start today. I would suggest uh, today and then tomorrow morning. I would say tomorrow morning, set your alarm 15 minutes earlier. You're like, I don't set an alarm, I just wake up. Okay, well then, first thing you do, shift everything else down. Before you turn on the news, before you, whatever, um, make this the first thing. So remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about um, time, and, and we, we, how, how we like to say we don't have time, and we, we had to acknowledge that the truth is that we actually don't make the time. So it's been a while since I talked about this, but if you have a smartphone, um, you have a Bible on you all the time, Okay. Uh, we mention this app every Sunday right before the sermon, so let's get specific for a minute. If you don't already have the Bible app on your phone, I don't know why you have a smartphone. Um, it should be the first app that you download, and it should be right on your homepage where you can find it. Um, I would encourage you to take out your phone right now and go to wherever it is that you get your apps, whatever device you're using. If you don't already have the Bible app, I'm going to talk you through it right now. You just search Bible. You can get to it on your computer, too. If you'd rather do it on a, on a computer, you just go to Bible.com. Might want to write that down. It's a pretty tricky website address to remember. Bible.com. In the App Store or on Google Play, search Bible. Look for this icon. It should look familiar to you because we put on the screen every Sunday. It's on a couple signs around the building. On the Bible app, you can read a passage. You can look up a passage and read it. But if you're not a reader... And I know a lot of people aren't readers. I get that. And that's why this is intimidating. Listen to this. If you're not a reader, the Bible app will read it to you. Yeah, it's true. You can listen to it. Nobody says you have to read the words on a piece of paper or you have to read the words on a device. It's about getting the words into your mind that affects your heart. I think one of the greatest features of the Bible app is, is the reading plans. How many of you ever used a reading plan on the Bible app? I'm just curious. Just used, how many of you have ever done like a long one, like a read through the Bible in a year thing? Some of you have done that. That's cool. I also, the thing I love most about it, I did reading plans long before there was a Bible app, and you'd get behind, and then you'd have to read like 47 chapters a day because to to, you didn't want to do the math to recalibrate the whole thing. And with the Bible app, you fall behind. It uses a catch-me-up button, and you're back on schedule. There are dozens and dozens of reading plans. Some are just a few days long. Some are like the whole year or whatever. Some are topical. Some are about different books of the Bible, whatever. You can do them on your own, or you can choose to do them with friends through the social component of the app. So here's what I like to do. Let's do a short reading plan together. So I'm going to suggest this one by John Mark Comer um, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. This plan is five days, okay? Has a, so we can do it this week. has a short devotional uh, two to three passages of Scripture, 
And if you'll friend me on the Bible app this week, we can kind of do this together. And if you feel like, well, what's the big deal? Like, it felt like you just pivoted in this sermon. Like, what difference is this going to make? You're talking about pace of life, now we're talking about reading the Bible. 15 minutes a day can make, and I just picked that because it's doable, can make such a difference because here's what's true. If you're in hyper overdrive, and you stay in that mode for very long, it's probably taking your energy, it's dictating your peace, it's stealing your joy, it's affecting your marriage, your family, it's diminishing your influence, your effectiveness, and maybe even affecting your meaning that you draw from life. So, I say let's get started today on a practice that will help affect the pace of our lives. So let's start with this reading plan. Let's invite one another to do it together. Let's start reading this tomorrow morning. Uh, Let's just start this week with a slower pace. And I think we can start by carving out some intentional time just to set some time aside um, to prioritize our time with him, to establish, this is about establishing a rhythm that is healthier, that is sustainable, and a pace that honors this principle of Sabbath. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, sometimes it really does feel like life is overwhelming and, because it's complicated. And some of us are sitting here just feeling overwhelmed. Lord, let's just, as we make this commitment to, today to, to just carve out a few minutes tomorrow, starting tomorrow. Pray that we'll follow through on that. Because we really do believe just a few minutes a day can begin to affect um, kind of the, the, the pace the priority, the rhythm of our days. You've made it very clear in Scripture that you want a relationship with us. You come seeking us. You want to speak to us. You want to show yourself to us. And sometimes we don't make time for that. And then we wonder, is God even real? Does God love me? Does God care about me? And the truth is we haven't taken this relationship very seriously. So I pray for each of us who struggle with pace of life thing. Uh, Maybe we're struggling with even the idea of finding 15 minutes anywhere. I pray for the discipline and the follow-through to make this commitment to start our day with you, to recalibrate our priorities for the day ahead. And I pray that you would speak to us through this practice this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.